Welcome to another episode of Smile You Love Us, a podcast where we discuss the wide world of teen movies, what they mean to us, and their impact on pop culture as a whole. I'm Blythe, I am Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen years old, <laughs> and I'm a sexy little Rubik's Cube. I'm Erin, and I have watched To All the Boys I Loved Before many times, but the weekend it premiered, I watched it three times. <laughs> Every week we'll be discussing a new crop of teen movies based around a theme of our choosing. Today's theme is fake relationships, uh, an absurd trope that has become a true staple of the teen movie universe, which we see proven out tonight very, very well. Yeah, today's films all involve a pair of teens from disparate social circles who decide that in order to get what they want, whether that's money, status, revenge, the attention of a former paramour, they must enter into a fake but convincing <laughs> romantic relationship with one another. Uh, some of the most memorable films from the genre that we'll be discussing today are Can't Find Me Love, Love Don't Cost a Thing, essentially the exact same movie, uh, Drive Me Crazy, a real sleeper hit, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, maybe my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> Uh, and Netflix's newest teen film that came out today, it's been out for like 22 hours, uh, The Perfect Date, and we just finished watching that. Literally just finished watching yeah. it. So spoiler alert, we will be discussing the plots of these films in detail, including The Perfect Date, so if you haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet, if you're normal with a job <laughs> and life, you haven't watched it yet... Please proceed with caution. Or watch the films. Just watch the films. Yeah, watch the films. And then come back. So, let's get started. The uh, first movies on our list are Can't Buy Me Love and Love Don't Cost a Thing. Can't Buy Me Love was released in 1987 and directed by Steve Rash, who would go on to direct several Bring It On sequels. Good for you, Steve. <laughs> it stars a, an extremely adorable Patrick Dempsey as Ronald Miller... A nerd who gives a popular cheerleader named Cindy Mancini $1,000 to pretend to be his girlfriend for a month. Cindy Mancini is played by Amanda Peters. The film was remade in 2003 as Love Don't Cost a Thing, with Nick Cannon starring as the geek, Alvin Johnson, and Christina Milian playing the hot cheerleader, Paris Morgan. Was it officially billed as a remake when it was made, or was it just like loosely inspired by? Well, it was... They didn't even really mention Can't Buy Me Love, but it's pulled right, right. Like, scene okay. from scene. It's pretty crazy how okay. much is pulled from it. Uh, why exactly the popular girl needs the money and how the geek manages to get it are different for each film, but the stories are, like we just said, are identical. The protagonist <laughs> has spent his high school years focused on schoolwork and longs to know what life at the popular table is like. He feels that just dating the head cheerleader would make him cool in the eyes of the rest of the school... And after a twist of fate leads the popular girl to be in his debt, she agrees to pretend to date him for a month as repayment and gives him a makeover to help him fit in better with a popular crowd. Their plan works a little too well. She ends up falling for him because he's smart and a good listener. But the popularity <laughs> has gone to his head. He ends up humiliating her during a fake breakup that they plan. And he starts dating her friends, which is fucked up. And he ditches his own friends because he's not popular. And she eventually reveals the truth of their arrangement at a party in front of everyone, and he instantly goes back to being a nerd, except now he has no friends. 
He eventually realizes the error of his ways, apologizes to his friends, embraces his true identity, and ultimately gets the girl. Blah, blah, blah. Both movies <laughs> end with a speech about being yourself, followed by an unironic slow clap, which makes me think maybe oh. teen movies originated in the slow clap. Maybe? I mean, what other genre would have possibly been like, now's a good time for all 17-year-olds to be like, we have no other response. We're just going to, like, applaud. Like, at the end of presentations in high school, you just kind of are like, all right, on to the next. Like, that's... Yeah. Okay. okay. I back you up in this hypothesis. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then they kiss, the uh, the geek and the cheerleader. It's so, very chaste movies. Uh, well, okay, I take it back. There's a lot of innuendo, but there's also Patrick Dempsey proclaiming how long it's been since he touched a tit, which is a weird scene. We'll get to Patrick Dempsey in a minute, because... Some fun cameos in these films include an almost unrecognizable Seth Green, who plays Patrick Dempsey's little brother, Chucky. Yeah. I didn't, I literally did not know it was him until I read the IMDb page and was like, Seth Green's in this movie? And then Cal Penn and Keenan Thompson are two of Nick Cannon's geeky friends, and they were my favorite part of the movie, apart from Christina Milian, who is a teen princess, and I'm obsessed with her. I kind of for- had forgotten about like Cal Penn as a cultural moment. Um, not, I did not forget about Harold and Kumar, but I kind of forgot, like, oh, Cal Penn was like a lightning rod of a human because he went on to be a speechwriter for the Obama administration. Like, I he just also totally was, forgot. He was in so many teen movies. He right. just cleaned up. He really... Is Calpin, like, very rich and well-educated, do you think? Is he the secret victor of all teen movies? Probably. Probably. Yeah. Way to go, Calpin. Good job. So, Roger Ebert reviewed both of these films, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, Blythe and I did a lot more prep work this go-around to kind of keep it to a, to less than two hours. And, you're uh, welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. But, uh... We swapped some notes prior. We did a little more prep work, and I was stunned. I was truly laughing upon reading what Blythe is about to share with you. So Roger Ebert (laughs) reviewed both of these movies. Uh, They are, like, 20 years apart. Roger Ebert, for those of you who do not know, who are not familiar with Roger Ebert, wrote for the Chicago Sun-Tribune for probably, like, 40 years... What? Why are you shaking your head like I'm that? I'm just... I didn't know people didn't know who Roger Ebert was. People he's, definitely don't know who oh, Roger Ebert is. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't... Um, he's a very important, like, personal figure for me. Uh, he's a film critic who became more of a household name when he was on Siskel and Ebert. At the movies. Yeah, at the movies, which was like a... I wish I could remember what network it's on, but it, it lived... It was just a review show and they would give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and then it became Ebert and Roper because Siskel left or maybe it was vice versa. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, he passed away a few years ago. His honor very much still lives on with a staff of writers who review wonderful films and turn us all on to films that probably wouldn't uh, register otherwise, especially in like kind of a pre-internet era. And the fact that he reviewed these films feels like a huge waste of his time and resources. <laughs> I know. I do I do love the idea of him sitting in these films, just like with his notepad. So he eviscerated the 1987 version, the Can't Buy Me Love. Uh, he gave it half a star. Wow. But he gave the remake, 
the Nick Cannon Steve Harvey remake, Can't Buy Me Love, or sorry, Love Don't Cost a Thing, he gave it three out of four stars, saying that it is sweet and kind of touching, lower on cynicism and higher on wisdom than the original, and might actually contain some truth about the agonies of high school insecurity. Okay. 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 Sure. (laughs) In addition to receiving high praise from Roger Ebert, Love Don't Cost a Thing was nominated for five Teen Choice Awards, including Best Lip Lock and Best Liar, which are actual categories. The Teen uh, Choice Awards has like 65 categories, and it's 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 one of my favorite awards. I was going to say, how often do you watch it? I mean, I don't watch it anymore now, because I feel like that would be inappropriate. I feel like, I feel like <laughs> we need to cycle this back into I, our lives. I watch it. I did watch it a lot. Um, sadly, this film did not take home any awards that year. It lost in almost every category to <laughs> Pirates of the Caribbean because... They really cleaned up that year. Because 2004 was a truly strange time. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Blythe, for You're sharing. Welcome. My pleasure. All right. We are, uh, skipping ahead. Well, actually, we're going back in time a little bit, which feels weird now that chronologically I think of this, but we're going to talk about Drive Me Crazy. So good. Uh, it came out in 2000, I'm sorry, 1999. It is weird in my mind that this movie came out before Love Don't Cost a Thing. Um, they I, feel like they came out in the same right, year. Right, they feel like they could have come out in the same year. And I don't know if that's like my memory or just like a pop culture hodgepodge of life. Um, okay, so Drive Me Crazy, for those of you who haven't seen it, it, it really holds up. So uh, we will talk about that in a moment. But it features a teen, reigning teen queen of the television at this point in time, Melissa Joan Hart, who was of Clarissa Explains It All fame, uh, and then was in her kind of like Sabrina prime. Sabrina may have ended by this point. No, no, no. I take that back. Sabrina was ramping up. Um, Sabrina the Teenage Witch that was on the WB, not the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina that is now on Netflix. Very very different television shows. But Equally I like, I great. Like them both. Equally great. Very different. Sabrina the Teenage Witch was a big part of TJF. Yeah, TJIF, which Blythe and I have had a little bit of our own TJIF today. Um, we we'll talk about the perfect we'll talk about our perfect Friday while we talk about the perfect date at the end of this list. So Drive Me Crazy came out in two thousand I'm sorry, I keep saying two thousand. It came out in nineteen ninety-nine. <laughs> I was ten years old. Uh Melissa Joan Hart plays Nicole. Nicole is pretty great. She's a very, like, type A, cool girl, has a lot of, like, social cachet. She's planning this big dance for the centennial of her high school. Um, and she really wants to go with this guy, Brad, who is the, such a Brad, uh, the star of the basketball team. And so Brad ends up asking some random girl from another school. Nicole goes to a party. She gets drunk at the party, which is like a very classic trope of this category is that the girl gets like very drunk at some point and kind of falls apart in a certain way. Uh, She needs a sober ride, which is like a very 90s thing, like pro-designated drivers. Mm -hmm. A lot of like Mothers Against Drunk Driving feels like they would have like co-signed the release of this film. Um, so this guy designated Dave comes and picks her up and designated Dave. It's Dave, right? It's not Dan. Oh yeah, it's Dave. Dave. Uh, Dave is best friends with 
Nicole's next door neighbor, Chase, played by the very hunky Adrian Grenier pre-entourage. Um, and yeah, he is a major babe. And he has just been dumped by his very beautiful girlfriend. Her name is Dulcie in mm-hmm. this film, which is very... In a, it doesn't get explained, um, but it is Allie Larder, who is obviously a major babe, and yeah. she's so young in this and, like, fresh-faced, and it's, it's like, a treat to see her playing this, like, gr- quote-unquote grungy ex-girlfriend. So, Especially since she plays the head cheerleader in Varsity Blues, like, a year later. Right, like, her, like her, Allie Larder's shtick is, like, hot, smart blonde girl. Like, hot, not smart, but, like in the know, has a leg up on things, blonde yeah. girl. Um, so, yeah, this was five years before Entourage. They decide that they are going to fake a relationship so that Brad is jealous and wants to ask Nicole to go to the dance, and Dulce is jealous of Chase, is Adrian Grenier's character's name, and wants to just, like, take him back and they can go to, like, weird coffee shops and, like, PETA protests, basically. Uh, they hang out a lot. They just pretty much drive around, eat french fries, go to basketball games. Nicole is amazing. There's an incredible makeover scene for Chase where they, like, go to a mall, which, like, it's always amazing to see a mall on film. Like, they they never look good, and yet, when you're 13, you're like, I'm gonna do this. Like, I'm gonna go make myself over at Aeropostale. Um, never worked. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Aaron, I learned so much about you through this podcast. Um, they... (laughs) Their plan works, and both of their loves want them back and then they decide that you know maybe they've learned some things about themselves in this process when I was outlining the this episode I like I watched this movie four days ago and I could not remember like I was like what was the conflict like this is a very pleasant film and then the surprise they get back together at the end um and then like creepiest twist to a super pleasant pretty chaste film is they get home from the dance and they're like all kissy face at the back door and the door opens and they both have single parents who are now dating each other. Yeah. Um, and when I rewatched this, I was like, we could have done without this twist. Yes. Agreed. Um, on, in so many levels. And the name of the film drive me crazy is inspired by the titular song, Drive Me Crazy by Britney Spears. And a fun little fact, Melissa Joan Hart, it was like, it had a different working title. And Melissa Joan Hart was like really adamant that they keep the title that because she was concerned that Britney Spears might not be a big star and the film might be dated because of the music. Wow. Not because of anything else. And uh, I presumably everyone in, who is alive knows who Britney Spears is. That is ironic. And uh, knows the song Drive Me Crazy. And it is like maybe one of the most endearing pieces of, or enduring pieces of 90s culture. And and Britney Spears, like American pop music. And also, I love that video when when they're in it. Yes, it seems like that was a package deal. It was so fun. Yeah. I love that video. I 
I can great. see it so clearly in my mind, Darren. This movie, more or less, is the reason we have this podcast. Mm-hmm. I would say that the movie To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which came out on Netflix. It's a Netflix original movie. It came out August of last year, so 2018. And I would say that this movie, it wasn't a turning point in my friendship with Blythe, but it was it was sort of like... Um, Blythe and I talk about pop culture a lot, and this kind of became um, a new focus for us, like teen heartthrobs, teen movies, teen emotions. I will say that Erin was not the only person to get swept up in mm. the craze that was To All the Boys I Love Before. Certainly not. So many celebrities, the internet went crazy, so Erin wanting to talk about this film was we all want to talk about Yeah, I'm glad you bring up celebrities because I'm going to pull pull up a quote that Gabrielle Union tweeted um, about, about this movie. A person on Twitter the weekend that this movie came out said, Here to announce that I, too, am a proud member of the Thirsty Old Bitches for Peter Kavinsky Club. And Gabrielle Union, who is like 50 years old but a teen princess forever, said, what time is the meeting? I'll bring the snacks and take the minutes. Hashtag to all the boys I've loved before. Iconic. So that kind of gives you a insight into the fever pitch that this movie got to in pop culture. Um, I really, it's serendipitous that I watched this movie for the first time. Um, I had been hearing a lot about it leading up to it. I knew that there was a lot of source material from Jenny Han has this trilogy of, um, I don't even know if it's a trilogy. She wrote the book, then she had two sequels. It's been published in 30 languages. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks. And then it became a Netflix movie that was bought, the rights were bought by Will Smith's production company. So... This movie had a lot going for it before it really even hit, like, the Netflix world. Um, And a lot of teenage girls and people who love young adult fiction loved this movie. And I was not familiar with it. But I woke up on Saturday and I was in kind of a bad mood. I was feeling a little down. Um, And... I was like, oh, I'll just watch this movie. And I was so charmed by it. It was like nine in the morning. I was so charmed by it. Uh, I watched it again that afternoon, like that evening. That's when we started to worry about you. That's when my boyfriend walked into the room and said, are you, what are you doing with your life? And then the next day I watched it again. Um, The plot. (laughs) So Laura Jean, Laura Jean, Covey is played by Lana Condor, who is a movie star. Like, I can't stress this enough. She is the reason that this movie is so good. Like, we love Peter Kavinsky, but we would not love him if she didn't love him so much. Um, And she's just, she has the most expressive face. She is, like, a total megawatt movie star. And I, I said that, like, the first time I saw it, who is this person? And I'm thrilled that we'll have more movies with her uh, moving forward. So she plays the middle daughter. Um, her older sister is played by Janelle Parrish, who is very famous from Pretty Little Liars. So like that was a big casting moment. Uh, John Corbett, Aiden from Sex and the City, is her dad. And uh, her younger sister is played by this girl named Anna Kath 
cart. Um, she's a like great performance, and I can't leave her out because no. she's a wise sage, and she plays like a 13-year-old. So um, Laura Jean is a... Her mom was Korean and has since passed away, not so explained, but when she was younger, uh, her older sister is going to college, and... Like, she's really bookish and cute, and she's not lost, but she just kind of, like, sticks to her comfort zone, and she loves romance novels, and we find out that she's written five letters to all of the kind of bigger crushes that she's had in her life, and then accidentally, they all get mailed, and one of the letters that she had written was to her sister's now ex-boyfriend, her sister who's at college, who also happens to be their next door neighbor. This isn't a confusing plot, but it's just like a lot and it's an actual plot compared to the rest of these movies. That's true. Um, so in order to avoid this next door neighbor, ex-boyfriend of her sister, Josh, another guy who got the letters, Peter Kavinsky, played by Noah Centineo, who we have some mixed feelings about as a person, but as an actor, wow. I don't have mixed feelings. <laughs> Life is resolute. Um, so in order to avoid Josh, Peter finds her and is like confronting her about the letters and Josh is about to confront her about the letters and she kisses Peter so that Josh is like thrown off her scent and uh, then her and Peter has just broken up with his or been dumped by his girlfriend, this girl Jen, and... Uh, Jean and Peter are like, okay, let's have a fake relationship so that Josh doesn't think that this is happening and um, so that Jen is jealous and they make up this contract and the contract uh, is very sweet. I would say it's probably one of the sweeter, it is the sweetest of all of these it's kind so of fair. like rules. Like uh, their personalities really shine through when they're talking about the contract and like there's a reference to 16 Candles. There's a reference to Fight Club, which is not really romantic. It's not a romantic comedy. No, but, but it's, it's such a good setup of, like, this is a teenage boy. Yeah, this is a teenage boy. Um, he loves Fight Club. She loves 16 Candles. They've never seen each other's movies. You kind of understand, like, their interests and their, their like, investment in different levels of social engagement um so the film culminates i shouldn't say culminates but the conflict arises when they go on a ski trip uh i don't want to give the rest of this movie away because i think that if you haven't seen it you should see it there's a ski trip there's a hot tub there's like a very sexy but not inappropriate makeout scene in a hot tub that just like makes your heart beat out of your chest. It's so sweet. And then there's like this weird sex tape plot that is very applicable for the digital age where like someone took a picture and it gets misconstrued. Bottom line, the two actually fall for each other. And at the end of the movie, they are together and it's about, you know, being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and it's okay to let people in. And it's, I mean, it's so great. I love this movie so much, and I there's going to be a sequel, and I, I can't wait. And I've talked about this movie for, like, ten minutes, so I apologize. <laughs> no, it's it's the movie worth the most of our time today. Uh, the last movie we will discuss is the one we just watched, the Netflix original called The Perfect Date. 
Noah Centineo was back in our lives, this time playing Brooks Radigan, which, yikes. How do you feel about that name? We're going to talk more about that name. How does the internet feel about that name? (laughs) Oh, he's already inflamed for it. So Brooks Radigan is a high school senior who creates an app where anyone can hire him to play the perfect stand-in boyfriend for any occasion. Sorry, we wrote this script before we watched the movie. Brooks doesn't create the app. His cool friend Murph creates the app. Okay, my bad. No, no, not Uh, your bad, but this movie is not Brooks's movie. That's fair. So it's based on a book called The Stand-In, which was written by Steve Bloom. He wrote the film with Randall Green, who wrote the screenplay for 1985's The Sure Thing, which is one of the best, like, college rom-coms ever, and... Young John Cusack. Oh, it's a great movie. so great in it, and if we ever did a... Nicholas Sheraton. It's incredible. Um, if there is ever a Smiley Love Us the College Years, we will definitely discuss <laughs> The Sure Thing, but we are just doing high school movies. That's in our rules, so we're sticking to that. So this perfect date, it's definitely a distortion of the fake relationship trope, because he's not... Dating one girl, but a lot of them, and it's, but it's still pretty accurately placed in the fake relationship. Yeah, there were a lot of scenes that very much mirrored uh, Can't Buy Me Love and Love Don't Cost a Thing, down to like the, well, he has kind of a love interest, a platonic love interest that kind of sets off the app. Uh, Her name is Celia, Mm -hmm. and... um, She's like a quirky, manic pixie dream girl, but with an attitude. Yeah, we tried really hard while we were watching to like place who she reminded us of, and like Blythe said, Zoe Deutsch, and uh, I think Zoe Deutsch is like so adorable in a different way. And I said she was kind of more of like an Anna Kendrick, Kat Dennings. Like she's got that I do my own thing very, yeah, vibe. Um, she definitely had the funniest lines in the film and is like she she doesn't carry the movie but she kind of does um they're if they didn't have any chemistry this movie would have been a total flop. yeah it, it's um, not a great screenplay <laughs> no it's not um so brooks radigan his ambition is to attend yale and he wants to become some kind of mogul his his um i guess mentors are steve jobs and elon musk and michael jordan it's it's Mo- aspiring to be a mogul is the right way to describe yeah. it. He's not really, he doesn't, and the theme is kind of that he doesn't really know what else he wants to be. He just wants to be a mogul who like changes things. Very buzzwords. It's like, yeah. So the plot is too convoluted to go into, and I hope you watch it just because it's fun. But there's his dream girl is played by Riverdale's Camila Mendez, and she is so smoking. She yeah. plays this girl, Shelby. She is underutilized in this film. She very much done way so. more. And. Like all these other movies, it ends up with him finding out who he really is, blah, blah, blah. You, you get it. I mean, I mean, let's get into it. What yeah, did you think so of The Perfect Date? I think that we decided that we would lead with The Perfect Date to talk about our first impressions because we thought that we would have the, the fewest impressions. And um, Blythe and I also just spent 90 minutes watching it, so we've kind of distilled our, our vibes. Um, I think I'm, I'm a huge to all the boys I loved before fan, as is evident. And having seen Noah Centineo now, he did another movie for Netflix in the fall called Sierra Burgess is a Loser that was not very good either and, like, really missed the mark. And then now seeing A Perfect Date, like, he is charming, but he, and very handsome and can be, like, very smooth in scenes, but he is not 
he is a he is a limited leading man. Um, he he is only as strong as the people that he is in a scene with. This is really disappointing. Um, but like he's he's not stepping into this. I have like a very special class of Holly, young Hollywood leading men. That's like Michael B. Jordan and Timothy Chalamet and like people like that. And that's just like not who. And Freddie Prince Jr. Freddie Prince Jr. is in a, is older. He's not in this young generation. Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, the, he's not in the millennial leading man generation. Um, yeah. So I I had I really hoped that Noah Centineo was like a part of that. And I, I don't think he is. No. I think he's a little B-list. Wow. Oh, my God. And I wanted him to be A-list. Like, when I saw Tom I Boyce, think he has A-list potential. I just think he he has to be a little more choosy about the script. Yeah, he's he definitely likes. in bed with Netflix right now. And, like, good for him. I hope he's making a ton of money and, like, investing it wisely or living his life. But I I would be interested to see him do, like, a mini series. And I know that he's on... This series, The Fosters, which is like a freeform series that people love if they watch it. I watched The Fosters. Oh, okay. I figured you would. Yeah. Um, okay, but back to the movie. Uh, Matt Walsh is in it of Veep fame. <clears throat> so his best scenes are with Matt Walsh. I feel like that's when he has the best lines. That's when he feels like the most comfortable. It's when he, with his dad and with Laura Moreno, the Celia character. Yeah, yeah. When he's leaning on someone else's like comedic, completely, and I and he shines in those moments. Yeah, I really do. I think he does. I think Noah Centineo will can be a star. I mean, to all the boys I loved before show prove that. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, I think other things about the movie. He has this gay best friend, a gay male best friend, which, um, sad to say, is like a progressive artistic choice in 2019 and we wish it was not but um I don't love how they really minimize him as a friend and he's like way smarter than Brooks Radigan his name is Murph and yes there is a version of this movie where he (coughs) is the lead yeah and it would be in the same class as like a love Simon which was one of the best films I think of last year and I think that this movie could have done a lot better service to that character. Yeah, I think that this movie, ta- a perf- The Perfect Date talks a lot about, like, what does getting into college mean, which is, like, very topical right now in April of 2019, and what kind of sacrifices do you need to make, and what type of person do you need to be, and, you know, what does an Ivy League school mean versus a exceptionally good public institution? Um, the public colleges that are shamed in this movie I just want to like run through them really quickly or UConn which is I don't think I could get it not that I'm like the smartest person in the world but like I know very successful people who went to UConn um I don't think I could get in there in the day and age University of Michigan is not a private is not a public school yeah and uh and it's not shame though Celia's character is like I don't care about I don't care about prestige I'm going to University of Michigan it's like that is a prestigious school extremely prestigious um and there was one more but I can't remember it Ivy Leagues are bust is this mentality that this movie has and then he's finds himself and he's like I'll go to UConn and it's like okay great good for you he does literally say in the film if I have to lie to get into a school, I probably don't deserve to go there. Which is a great motto that we should all adopt. 
very, Forever. very funny. I really want to move on and talk about... Let's move on. Can't Buy Me Love and Love Don't Cost a Thing. <coughs> Let's move on. We... I don't remember exactly when I first saw these films. I remember renting Can't Buy Me Love because I was really into this actress, Amy Dolans, who played Katie Thompson and She's Out of Control, which is a favorite teen movie of mine. Uh, my main takeaways from... Can you explain who she is in this movie? Is she the girl with the face paint? She's the friend with the no, face she's, paint? No, she's in like one scene. Oh. She's, very, she's a very minor character. I don't even... You wouldn't remember who she okay. was. But I was, I was just very into her film. Her vibe. Oeuvre. It's, uh, it's not a good movie, but Patrick Dempsey is really electrifying, I think. He's a really, really good actor in this. Patrick Dempsey's a really good actor. Yeah. And it's crazy to see him so young in something that he really does carry the film and, like, is supposed to. And he's so young and he hasn't become Patrick Dempsey at this point. But I kind of agree with uh, Roger Ebert's Half a Star. It's a movie pretty much otherwise devoid of emotion. Patrick Dempsey and Amanda Peterson have some chemistry, and Amanda Peterson has a really sweet moment with her mom, mm-hmm. but that, that's it. It's it's pretty much a shallow film. And with Love Don't Cost a Thing, I only ever saw it on TV, mm-hmm. so this was Same. the first time I'd ever watched it all the way through, and it was fine. It, it's a very 2003 movie. The music, the wardrobe. It's so 2003. It's, it's a time There's capsule. There's a lot of like, weird bling on it's, different body parts. Yes, and... My only takeaway from it, rewatching it, was that Christina Milian is perfect. Mm-hmm. She is, she should have been in like 12 more teen yeah. movies. I don't really know what stalled her career. I was, a, I just was so enamored by her. And Okay, so the first time that I saw Can't Find Me Love was definitely after um, Grey's Anatomy had come out. And like my mom was like, oh, you know, Patrick Dempsey, he's from... Love, uh, can't find me love, and I'm like, no, mom, I'm 12. I don't know what that is, and so I remember renting it and watching it with uh, my mom and my sister, but I don't really remember the plot points. It was just like kind of a average blockbuster rental. The thing that like immediately jumped out to me about can't find me love is in the cre- opening credits, all of a sudden it's like choreography by Paula Abdul. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sorry, this is a dancing movie? Like, I had no idea. And then there is some very Paula Abdul dance, dancing in it, which was a treat. It was fun. Um, Yeah, so the other thing about this movie on rewatches, everything that they are wearing, you could see in Prospect Park tomorrow. It's absurd. It's Tucson is where this film is set, and they are wearing wool sweaters, with gabardine wool blazers over it. <laughs> At one point, Amanda Peterson has on black leather gloves like she's OJ. And it is... It has to be 85 degrees outside. Yeah, it's like... it. it I don't understand why they said it in Tucson if that was like the creative way that they were going. Like Patrick they could Dempsey have picked is anywhere. mowing a lawn in a beret. It yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. It's confounding. Um, I will also say the thing that was really interesting to me in re-watching this is um, my cousin Megan, who's my godmother and, like, older than me, um, she was a teenager in the 80s, and there's a lot of phrases that she says that I didn't realize were from this movie. And I don't know if they were, like, phrases that are, like, were part of the 80s vernacular, but I always thought, Megan, you are so clever if you're listening to this. I don't think you are. But, if like, she calls people, she refers to things as nerd herds, which I... 
love. And then I heard this in the movie and I was like, oh my God, the nerd heard. Um, and also from geek to chic or chic to geek, whatever they say, like amazing, like quick little one-offs. And then I started thinking about like all the other clever phrases that Megan says. And I'm like, oh my God, she's got some great 80s references that I just have just taken for granted. Yeah, this line was fun. Um, yeah, there were like a few very weird things about Can't Buy Me Love, but like the fact that she's wearing suede outfit that her mother, that gets stained, like that's really weird. so hot though. I was like really into it. Yeah, it's like a three piece suede ensemble that, and then. It was very Selena. It was really Very Selena. It has like fringe and shoulder pads, um, but like just very very 80s and then I would say that Amanda Peterson probably has the best um like drunk party meltdown thing where her friends are like straight vodka and which like okay nobody drinks straight vodka but if you do it is absolutely when you are in high school (laughs) and like um so I love that and then love don't cost a thing yeah Nick I don't really have much to say about this movie either I had not watched it in order, I will say that, like, Nick Cannon did a bunch of movies around the same time, and they all kind of bled together in my mind, and he was so much, like, this and Drumline had kind of, like, combined in my head a little bit. I liked Drum, I liked him in Drumline, though. I thought he was good, and I thought he was very bad. In yeah, so that was, like, what was disappointing on rewatch of this, is, like, oh, this is not Drumline, and Nick Cannon is not a good actor, and, like, that he is so over-the-top, like, like Steve Urkel-level nerdy, which is, bo- it's it was boring. It was very boring. But um, Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars, so what the hell do we know? The next movie we're going to talk about is Drive Me Crazy. <laughs> this was another movie that was on MTV all the time, so I definitely saw it many, many, many times on TV, and I loved it then, and I was really surprised at how much I enjoyed it rewatching it. It's yeah. a good movie. It's a good mo- It's a tight 90-minute movie. Like, it, it it doesn't have any... It has a few really weird things that happen, actually. I will discuss this. Um, but the main narrative of it is, like, kind of believable. And, like, they have really good chemistry. And, like, you can just tell that they are having fun. And the characters are having fun. And it's, like... It's just... Fun. It's yeah. a fun movie. And the relationships seem honest. You believe that Nicole and Chase grew up together and then grew apart for whatever reason. Melissa Joan Hart's character is amazing. She's this kind, fun, ambitious, realist teenager. Yeah. And she, I think, has the best attitude about high school that I've seen in a teen movie. She wants she- the memories and to check off some boxes, but nothing is overly romanticized. She's very clear. She isn't obsessed with Brad because he's captain of the basketball team. She just wants to date someone that she thinks will show her a good time and have fun at a dance. Like she's not, she's not making it overly sentimental or she's a realist. And I think I want to be her when I grow up. Nicole reminded me of someone that I went to high school with who I didn't know that well. So I don't know if she's like this in real life at all, but who just was like popular, but had her head on straight and was like, forward like Nicole has a lot of forward motion in her life Mm -hmm. and like she's using that like constructively in in high school which like a lot of the movies we talk about are like having high school end and this is just like she's present and she's just like cool and trying to have a good time I actually saw this movie when I was 10 years old in theaters and I specifically remember um 
it was at the Kingston Movie Theater with like a friend and her mom. And uh, there's like this weird, like I said earlier, like PETA segment to like show how interested in social activism um, Adrian Grenier and his girlfriend are. And I remember thinking that that was like so edgy and that was like why it was a PG-13 movie. I don't really know why it's a PG-13 movie, um, but maybe because people are lying about uh, relationships, but um, felt like a very sweet rom-com when I was 10. Like, I was like, oh my God, that was a great movie. And now rewatching it, I'm like, this is a great movie. Like, it's sweet. And um, yeah, I think that, like, we've talked about Adrienne Grenier is the babe of all babes and I was probably a little too young to really appreciate that but then when Entourage came on I was like oh hello I remember you <laughs> drive me crazy he's adorable in this no I, he adorable is like is a, that, a g-rated that's word not for genuine enough yeah no he's he is a babe yeah. he's hot he's hot he's, he's hot. hot he's, he's hot. really hot uh so my biggest takeaway on a rewatch of this movie is a bit of a rant, but it's an issue I have with a lot of teen movies. Let's air it out. A big issue. So this movie is representative of what happens when adults don't do their research. And obviously <laughs> teen movies are written by adults, duh. Uh, but they don't have to make that fact so obvious. There's this fourth wall that's broken when they don't even try to figure out what is happening in teen culture at the time. So some examples of right. this, like Melissa John Hart drops a Captain Kangaroo reference and Adrian Grenier makes a Dean Martin joke. And it's like, these references are 20 years old. Right. You would not be making these references. And the worst, the most egregious example is Nicole and the rest of the prom committee are talking about what band they're going to get to play at the prom. And they're obsessed with getting a brand that, Knows a lot of brandy. Like, that's the kind of band they want. Like, okay, brandy of, like... Like, Brandy Norwood yeah. of yeah. Melissa... And Melissa. Of Monica and Brandy. Yeah. Uh, it's... No, I just want... Some people might not oh, know I'm who sorry. Brandy Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I apologize. Well, this rant isn't for you. <laughs> like, Brandy, the teen R&B princess of the... Yes. Late 90s. Of, Cinder- of the Cinderella of Whitney Houston. Brandy. So... Great... Great film. Yes. So they're obsessed with getting a band that knows a lot of Brandy, which doesn't make any sense because in 1999, Brandy only had two albums out. (laughs) Okay? So first of all, you're never going to get a band that plays a lot of Brandy. What you're going to get is a DJ. Okay, writers? You just had to say DJ. That would have solved all of your problems. And second of all, don't choose Brandy. That's such a lazy choice. What would your choice have been? I wouldn't say one singular artist. I would say we should get a DJ. So that we can have all of the teen hits that we want. But ironically, they have the Donnas as their so, band. Well, one of the alternative teens suggests that they book the Donnas. And Melissa Joan Hart's character literally says, they rock, but do they know Brandy? Right. No! <laughs> it's not It's not White Snake. It's not a cover band. <laughs> like, so, and this happens a lot. It's just, just do a modicum of research about... Teens, and you'll get a good movie like To All the Boys I Loved Before. So, do you think that there's like a bit of a disconnect between with like last week we talked about how two of the directors that we covered were talking about their teenage experience, and like, do you feel like the problem here is that writers are writing about their 
teenage experience or what they wish that their teenage experience would be, but it's like transposed on the current era. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you're going to do a modern teen movie, you have to figure out a way to make it feel You got to talk with some modern teens. Yeah. That's all I'm asking. Teens. I don't know any teens. Do you know some teens? But I feel like I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say, um, shout out to my cousin Olivia, because she and her sorority sisters, um, she's a sophomore in college, her and her sorority sisters watched The Perfect Date Tonight. As did Blythe and I, and we are not in college. So, um, I don't... But she's not even a teenager anymore, so I don't know any teens. Well, Teen- I feel like I didn't really get to hear your takeaways for To All the Boys I Loved before. Oh, okay. Um, I think both of us feel like... I mean, Aaron maybe watched this film more than I did, but I love this movie. Rewatching it, I think it is the best yeah. of this crop of teen movies. I almost feel like it does. It should belong in a better category than fake relationships. Yeah, I would agree. But it's the best version of a fake relationship. We debated putting this in, fa- in first love. Yeah. And maybe we'll talk about it again because maybe by then... It's just, it's really, really good. And if you are not that into teen movies, I, maybe you shouldn't listen to this podcast. But, for example, my boyfriend. What? I, I, was, I was re-watching this film this week. And he sat down next to me and was just casually watching it. And then he might not admit this, but he was hooked. He was really into it. Well, and I feel like Billy has a really open mind to pop culture. Yeah. I also think uh, Lara Jean Covey... Is a babe. Yeah, it's a babe. Yeah. And he was crushing. He was like, she's so cute. She is so cute. Um, I think that also this movie came out in like a real interesting cultural time in two ways. One, it was Netflix had like their summer of rom-coms. So this was like the third or fourth rom-com that Netflix released in the summer of 2018. They also released like the kissing booth and set it up and um some other ones that people love but i mean this was the best by like a landslide and then it also came out in the summer that had a ton of asian american representation which was like a watershed moment in hollywood we had like crazy rich asians and searching and just like a variety of different i mean crazy rich asians is also a rom-com um but it was just really nice to see this woman or I mean she's a teenager but Lana Condor is an adult woman who's like 23 24 it was just great to see um diversity on film that wasn't like heavy-handed or wasn't like the focus of the the plot um to just kind of like be like this is what American teenagers are like and they are emotional and have these like crazy weird internal lives um it just felt very honest. It was so lovely. The plot was both fun and like you would never it's obviously fictional, yeah, but it felt real. And I think especially Lara Jean Covey's not I'm she played this I'm not innocent, but I'm also not sexually promiscuous but I'm comfortable with my sexuality and I'm emotional like I'm emotional and I'm invested 
and I read all these like bodice rippers <laughs> and I'm very in touch with my sexuality, but I'm not sexually active was... I think she had a lot of ownership and autonomy over herself, which isn't something that we always get from like teenage girls in movies, especially when they're like meant to be opposite a, a love interest. Um, yeah. I think that the other thing that differentiates this movie versus the other movies is that like they are never found out like their agreement stays more or less private except mm. for like no it does it stays no, private I'm yeah with you. um well no I was trying to remember if her sisters find out but I don't think so I don't think anyone finds out about the contract well and it's not they're not really fake dating in the way that the other right. teen couples are again it feels more organic it feels yeah. more it's very sweet. It's, it's just very, very such sweet. a lovely movie, and I would will definitely if I have teenagers in I my can't. future, will definitely be showing them. I think I movie. might have said that to you the weekend I saw it. I was like, I can't wait to have teenage teenagers and watch this movie with them. Yeah, but I feel like my I, it won't. I feel like this movie has, is going to. I think because of the sequel, like maintain a place in pop culture that like. An eight-year-old will watch it to sleep over, and I won't get the chance to like watch it with them. Oh, like I think that this is like a. I think that this is like very much a sixteen candles. I agree. It's going Um, to be. It's it's part of the canon. Yeah, yeah. The new, the new canon for sure. Awards. Let's do it. So, uh, as with our last episode, we're going to be giving out several awards. The first being our most true to life, true to teen life moment, and our least true to teen life moment. Yeah. You want to start? Sure. The most true to life moment. This is quite revealing about me as a person. I didn't get my license until I was like 20 years old. I did not have my license in high school. Neither did I. What? Yeah. I didn't know that yeah. about you. I hate driving. Well, now I love it, but only because I was forced to. And I more or less learned how to drive, then moved to California and like got to drive on beautiful California open roads. It's literally the same for me. Blythe and I have had some very strange overlaps in our life. Um, yeah, so I hated driving. My sister got her license, like, I can't remember. Carrie, let me know. Did you get your license before me? I think you did. Um, I think you did. But I hated driving. I can remember one time, like, trying to learn and, like, getting out of the car while it was in drive. And my sister was like, you're going to kill us all. Um... And it felt like I was on a busy street, but it wasn't. Anyways, into all the boys I loved before, Laura Jean hates driving, and it's like kind of a meet cute in certain ways of how she, it, it's an it it plays like a cute little role in it. But I very much related. At the end, she insults him, and she's like, "I don't want to drive anywhere with you. I want to walk home. Actually, I take that back. I'd rather drive myself home." And that just, that was just like very relatable on a very personal level of like I would rather literally do the thing that I have nights terrors about than do this. What about you? My most true to teen life moment. Uh, well, first, like like Brooks Radigan, I also worked at a sub shop. Oh yeah, me school. too. Oh my god, me too. This is so weird. We I worked knew at, this though. We knew this though. I worked at Quiznos. I worked at Maria's. Seven Sandwich Shop in Situate, Massachusetts. If you know, you know. Wow. Uh, the other, um, very true to my personal teenage years, was Lara Jean staying home on a Friday night to watch the Golden Girls. Yeah. I did that a lot. 
Also, but you uh, still do that. I was gonna say, ironically, Lara Jean watching Golden Girls on her laptop <laughs> on a Friday night is what I do currently. So, uh, my current state of affairs, it's not much has changed. Great, that's great. <laughs> we love Lara Jean's life. What was your least true to life? Teen um, I mean, I still have like a big issue with teen parties and the way that they're represented in this movie. I mean, in in this set of movies what I had said prior to watching the perfect day was the fact that people are drinking red wine at a party in the 80s spill it on their friend's white suede outfit and then say go to the dry cleaners like I didn't know what a dry cleaner was when I was in high school (laughs) no but um now that I have seen the perfect date there are a lot of teen parties like huge teen parties with valet parking and um like the like there are cops in America who work in very small towns and very affluent towns. And, like, their sole purpose on Saturday nights is going to these teen parties and being like, go home. I know where you live. Go home. And the cops just don't exist in these universes. Or the parents, really. Like, their the parents par- aren't around. No, the parents were at this party, remember? Right, but they don't give a shit. And that's not accurate. Um... For most teens. For most teens. That's not accurate. But you do get a few wayward parents who want to be cool. Sure. Yeah. The just like total open container policies in like teen America feel a little off. Mm. For me, uh, aside from the plots of all of these movies, <laughs> which are just insane. You didn't pay your boyfriends when you were in high school? No. <laughs> just kidding. Um... Boyfriends, plural. Sorry, Aaron. I didn't have any, so. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> uh, but specifically, something that stuck out to me was Melissa Jones' heart's dad in Drive Me oh, Crazy. God. Aaron probably thinks I'm insane for this. But... No, no. So early on in the film, we learned that Nicole has intimacy and trust issues with men because her dad is not really in her life and he frequently misses their standing Friday breakfast dates. And, okay, that's great. That makes sense. It's very relatable. It gives her character some depth. But what's insane is that later on in the film, we find out that her dad is a hot air balloon enthusiast, and that's why he's been an absent father. Like, he literally says, I'm sorry I can't escort you to your prom, but there's a hot air balloon convention in Rio. In Rio. And I can't miss it. Like, the expense of going to hot air balloon conventions in Rio. And, like, what screenwriter is like, yeah, this works. Like, right. this like, is going to work. Make him a pilot or a truck driver if you want Anything. him to be absent. But this idea, and, like, I don't know. Make any- him a NASCAR enthusiast. Right. A hot air balloonist is just, like... We need something cool and exotic. I get, and I, I don't know anything about hot air ballooning, but I first That's of all, I good. Don't, I don't <laughs> think it doesn't strike me as a career, like, period, or even a hobby that would like take you away from your family for a long period of time. It was such a strange choice, and I was just thinking like, is the reason he keeps missing their breakfast dates because he's literally in the air and like he can't get down in time? Yeah, I mean, I think that like he's just meant to be. He's also played by. Uh, What's his name? From the dad from Seventh Heaven. Yeah, he's played by the dad from Seventh Heaven. And, um, which, like, interesting casting in 1999 for that. Um, Tells us a lot with, like, a a bit part to be cast by Reverend Eric Camden. Is that his name? I Mm -hmm. think it is. Yeah. Um, But 
at one point they're in when they're in the hot air balloon the only scene he's like i wanted to give you this nicole because it explains everything you need to know about me and about, Melissa, about why i haven't been around about yes you're right about why i haven't been like this is his excuse and he hands her this book and upon rewatch i was like is this gonna be like a buddhist book or like no. something like very new age and it's like the art no, it's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a very famous book. Oh, it book. is? Yeah, it's for... It's like a book that dads give to their teenage sons to talk about like self-exploration. And oh, my God. It's very on the road. You've never read it? It's... I've never read Zen. Have you read Zen and the Art sure. of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yeah. Oh, boy. I know. But <laughs> Melissa Stonehart takes the book... And throws it out, the, she out of the blue. makes the best face. Like, the face that... On my on the inside of my soul, I made every day of my high school life. Yes. She makes this face, and she just very cavalierly, in like throws the book over the hot air balloon, and we watch it like feather down to the ground. It is a very weird moment in cinematography, and so, I loved it. The hot air balloon thing it was just blew my mind. <laughs> I just it reminded me of like if this was a different movie, like the tone was different, then this would be her origin story of becoming a. a like superhero villain oh totally she'd be like my dad spent his entire life riding around in hot air balloons and now yeah, she'd that's be like helium girl right that's why i hijack blimps that's what i do <laughs> <laughs> well and also then he appears at the end because her dad went to the same high school as her and like the dance is open to anyone who went to the high school it, it semantics but she's like dad what happened to Rio? And he's like, Nicole, I'm where I need to be. And then they like hug and then Chase shows up and he's like, okay, I'll go upstairs. Bye. Like I just blew off my vacation to Brazil for you to send me to the balcony with a bunch of de- Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a weird plot. I, I feel you. Strange choice. We, our next award is the get out of my room award. Yeah. Or the best expression of teen angst. Yeah. What do you have? Okay. So, um, into all the boys I loved before when things kind of like come to a head with uh, Peter Kavinsky and Laura Jean and then like Laura Jean's sisters like Peter Kavinsky and Laura Jean are having a fight and then her neighbor who like is now her friend again that she used to have a crush on shows up and he's wearing the neighbor Josh is wearing like a hoodie with a denim jacket over it and Peter Kavinsky is like he looks like a penis he looks like a penis in that scene well, he looks like Justin Vernon, and that's the insult that I was like, this is amazing and of its time and angsty. So they're all kind of, like, confused and angry and, like, yelling at each other and also, like, sticking up for one another, but in a very, like, chaotic sort of a way. And then Peter Kavinsky, who has, like, shown up in his really hunky Jeep and, like, looks great in his outfit, is, like... What? Are you going to choose this bony bear wannabe over me? And the first time I saw it, I laughed so hard I almost fell off my couch. Because just to, like, have bony bear be an insult now in 2019 is something. But again, that screenwriter did their research. Right. That is a relevant... But I don't know if that screenwriter did their research to teens or to to millennial women who are watching and love bony bear and are like, Oh my god, he does look like Justin Vernon. Anyways, then they're all just kind of that's like, they're all just kind of having this like breakdown that's like subdued enough and very frustrated and no one is necessarily able to say what they mean to say because everyone keeps being like, I don't want to hear what you have to say and just go home. And that, that kind of like 
frustration of not being able to express yourself because someone won't hear you out is very teen. And then that just real of the moment dig was like, wow, perfect. That's a good one. Perfect. Yeah, there weren't a lot of angsty scenes in these movies. Or like angsty. Yeah, you have it. You have one that's maybe played for comedy as for well. Sure. Well, I don't think it was meant to be. It might be unintentional comedy. But Patrick Dempsey, one of like his nerdy friends, yells at him after he finds out that Patrick Dempsey threw a bag of poop on his doorstep. Literal in order poop to poop. impress the popular guys, and he's like, "You shit on my house, man! You shit on my house!" I hated that scene. I hated that whole. I mean, not that I hated the poop scene. It was just like a weird. Yeah, it, it wasn't was, necessary. Was, he could have been a jerk without feces. I'm just again like that movie was full of. If I was the screenwriter, I would have been like, let's put your lawn clippings on his back porch or something. Like there was just so much more creative ways. He's a lot. He lo- mows lawns for a living. Oh, that's right. Like it was just lazy to be like poop. Yeah. Come I, on. I agree. Movies uh, for teens, not tweens. Wow. <laughs> Okay. This is Nick at Night, not Snake. <laughs> podcast is only for people that are my age. So you do, oh, Nick at Night used to play not friends. Now Nick at Night only plays friends. That's fine. Uh, so friends, which was also referenced in A Perfect Date. Yeah, because it's timeless. Chandler Bing got a little shout out. You did it. Peter Fastinelli Award, anyone to give it out to? We only oh, have one. Yeah. I think I said Nick Cannon because. So, the Peter Fastinelli Award, if you don't remember from last podcast, maybe you didn't listen to Peter it. Peter Fastinelli Award will be present every week of the pod. The idea is that we're giving an award for a parent, for, for an actor that reappear, reappears as a parent somewhere in these movies down the line because we're obviously watching films from seven, 60s, 70s, 80s. And yeah. So you might see someone be a teen star and then later be a, a dad. Right. Like, to a spoiler teen star. alert: anyone who's a hunk in the '80s is now a dad. Yes. <laughs> right. Patrick Dempsey. <laughs> a lot of them are on Riverdale right now. Yeah. Uh, so Peter Fastinelli Award. We don't really have one. I I nominated Nick Cannon because he now he's produces a dad now. and frequently hosts the Teen Choice Awards. That's mm. like his new gig. And so it's like he's everybody's. He's dad. also the former Mr. Mariah Carey. Right. I mean, he is literally a dad, as many of these yeah. men are. But he yeah. had. There is no teen heartthrob that was in a movie in the eighties that now reappears right. in a. So I. I, I would give it to John Corbett, but John Corbett is never a teen in right. our consciousness. He's just like a hunk who's now like playing a hunky dad, which I'm really here for. It's like he's only ever played hunky doctors. He was a Northern Exposure. I'm sorry, he plays a carpenter and furniture designer in Sex and the City, not a doctor. I'm just so. saying, Northern Exposure was his big show and he was a hunky doctor. And now in To All the Boys I Loved Before, he's still a hunky You're just doctor. glazing over the Aiden years? I just feel like Northern Exposure is not talked about enough. Have that, you seen it? No, I haven't seen okay. it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that, but you're trying to erase... No, Sex everyone talks about IMDb Sex and City. Page. Everyone knows that he was Aiden. It's a great... It, he's arguably the only good character other than Miranda in retrospect. Okay. This is not a Sex and the City podcast? <laughs> um, who is your Stalker Channing Award? This was not... All of these movies were like a little more grounded than last year. I would agree. Um, so our Stalker last Channing year, Award is for the oldest actor who is cast as a teen and it goes to Janelle Parrish, who plays Margot. She is supposed to be 18 in the film, and she is played by a 30-year-old, which is 
like major, major props to yeah. Janelle Parrish for being so ageless. Uh, Let's get into some sleepover games and some yeah. Woo! Okay, so we're going to play Fuck, Mary Kill. I have assembled for Aaron an all-dad ensemble. Yeah. Melissa Joan Hart's hot air balloon dad. Yep. Um, we're going to do John Corbett, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Aiden. Mm-hmm. No, no, he's Dr. Covey in this. Okay, sorry, Dr. Covey. And then Matt Walsh, a great cameo for Matt Walsh in The Perfect Date. He plays Mr. Radigan, a.k.a. Mike McClintock, my favorite character from Veep. Yeah, if you don't watch Veep, this is, we're like big, big, big Veep fans here. Um, I would say that we were confused why Matt Walsh was in this movie. We were like, does he need the money? He I didn't say money. that. You said that. I said that. I thought he was great in this. I'm just confused. Like, it... If he's better than this movie. Anyways, he he made some really great biting jokes. I I thought about this before seeing the movie. Blythe uh, presented these options to me in a Google Doc. Um, I'm going to kill Reverend Camden straight out the bat because okay. he is a like confessed sexual predator in real life. So like this is the second week in a row that you have incorporated a sexual predator. So I'm hoping next week you give me something a little harder here, ma'am. Wow, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I'm obviously going to marry Dr. Covey. Like, he drives a Jaguar station wagon. He lives in the Pacific Northwest. He cooks not well, but regularly for his daughters in his beautiful Nancy Myers-inspired home. Yeah. He is always drinking, like, a chilled glass of, like, white wine or rosé, and he's very handsome. And he doles out appropriate but restrained advice. Like, he's like... Hey, let me just talk to you real quick about this thing that, like, you should probably know about. It's very, very good. Yeah. It's a good parent. He's, like, a very feminist dad. Mm. Uh, and then I would just have sex with uh, Mr. Raggin or Matt Walsh. Like, it'd be funny. It would... Not funny mm. in a bad way, but, like, it would be it would be a lighthearted time. Okay. You know? Um. My Fuck, Mary Kill for Blythe... Is like pretty pointed based on some feedback that I gleaned from her viewing reviewing. So um, I'm mixing it up. This is like a little co-ed version. Um, are we going with Peter Kavinsky, Chase, the next door neighbor, and Christina Milian? Amazing. This is really hard because these are. I all knew this would be very hard for you. Extremely hot people. Yeah, and I knew I this would be hard for you. Don't want to kill any of them, but I. Um, and we're, we're, are we talking about the characters? Yeah, okay. we are talking about the characters. Okay. So, uh, oh, which makes me double down on my Matt Walsh because he makes pancakes. So, like, the next morning would be great Take breakfast. Yeah, nice. way to go. So, Christina Milian is really hot in this movie, but her character is pretty annoying. She yeah. is, like, a cheerleader who wants to be more than that and wants to move to San Francisco, and I don't want to move to San Francisco. Um, Bet they are done that. <laughs> Both of so, us. So uh, I would definitely have sex with Christina Milian. Okay. Yeah. Use it and lose it. Thousand percent. And I would probably have to kill Chase Hammond. I knew you were gonna do it. I just I was very I'm very attracted to the character of Chase Hammond, but I just think Peter Kavinsky has a better future. I could we could make something. Yeah. We could build something together. He's yeah. extremely attractive. Yeah, Peter Kavinsky 
is played by an reasons. adult man as well, so we don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Was, Do you remember the like brief moment on the internet where everyone was like, "Phew, no, no, Centineo is twenty three years old. I don't have to feel like a total creep." Yeah, I didn't love that. How that made me feel? I didn't love it either. Okay. <laughs> okay, so this is a perfect segue into our uh, biggest crush, biggest crush of which, all time. Um, I'm just gonna be basic and say that it's Peter Kaminsky. I don't think it's basic. I share the same crush, but like. I don't think I'd had a television. I don't. I hadn't had a pop culture crush like this in a really long. time. Nor has apparently the entire internet. Well, I don't know if the. Yeah, I guess not. Like I mean, my last crush that of this magnitude was like Jack Shepard from Lost, where I was like, "Oh my god, you are just a complicated dreamboat." So what I think is really interesting is that we That's saw right. Noah Centineo in two films today, and yeah. I could care. I could not care less about the other Noah Centineo. But Peter Kavinsky just, there is just something so magical about that character. Like, I'm not, I do not have a crush on Noah Centineo. I have a crush on Peter Kavinsky. It is very specific to the character. So is it the lacrosse? Is it the Jeep? Is it the, like, it's, it's this whatever. It was like a perfect combination. It was, he is this. Jeep driving, kombucha drinking. Oh yeah, that's a great scene. He's preppy, but he's not. An asshole. He's he's not that preppy. He's like West Coast preppy. I don't know what that means. He's not wearing any popped collars. Okay, but he wears sweatpants. And he wore plays way. Lacrosse. He was way preppier in the character in the A Perfect Day is significantly preppier. He's wearing like khakis and a tucked in. He's trying to get into Yale. That's preppy. Okay. You know what I mean? This guy is just like Peter Gavins. He's just like. Is everyone cool? Let's be yeah, cool. Yeah, he's a he's a very laid back dude. Yeah. So for sure. But caring. Crush. He's not laid back and like unaffected. He's like a caring guy. Oh, for sure. He's sensitive. He's sensitive. He's got those puppy dog eyes. He's great. And he really cares about Largie. Oh, when he writes her, her name, beautiful love letters. The way he says Covey, I was telling Aaron is that is my sexual orientation. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> like I am. Did you tell Billy that after you after you finished dealing? You wouldn't know what that means. No. So let's do some superlatives. We yeah. have we mixed um, it up this week. We're gonna mix it up every week because yeah. they it's won't always apply. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, superlatives are what you'll see in any high school yearbook where you have best friends. Did you best go to high smile. school? Open your yearbook. It's in there. You just rank people openly as opposed to the last four years where you ranked people privately. These are like acceptable rankings. Erin went to a cutthroat high school and I, I, can't, really I can't wait to hear about I it. I really did. Stay tuned for the uh, bitches episode. It's going to be great. Okay, so our superlatives for this week are best hair, best couple, and class clown. Who do you have for best hair? Uh, best hair is absolutely the Chase Hammond before. Mm, those curls. Oh. So the 90s were a really weird time. And nothing was natural, it seems. And so the transformation sequence, like Adrian Grenier goes from having gorgeous tendrils, like to having this like weird greased down. They call it a unit. Uh, it's disgusting. Yeah, it's a they, crime someone one of his friends makes him. fun of it, but it's yeah, it's a make under. It's a glow down for sure. He had the best hair in the before. Yeah. I, mine was a tie between Chase Hammond's curls and Christina Milian's curls. Although I did, when I was rewatching To All the Boys I Love Before, Laura Jean's hair. Her ponytail. It's just like sleek, beautiful, perfect, yeah. long. 
But I have to agree with you. It's Chase. I also think that um, one of Amanda's friends in... You don't know. The friends don't really have names. But the friend who has, like, the crazy hair, the crazy 80s hair that has, like, color extensions oh, yeah. and sparkles. And she, like, wears, and like, she has, like, face, face paint yeah, on. Yeah, so her funny. hair was also great, but in a what was going on in 1987. Yeah. Best couple. I gave it to Large and Covey and Peter Kavinsky. Yeah, I'm definitely Triple hearts, on that. forever. Love them. It's It feels, like, unfair to the other movies that we included to all the boys in this. Uh, class clown. Yeah, so I went with Seth Green, which I would have given him last week as well in Can't Hardly Wait. You'll remember he played Kenny. But he plays um, Ronald in... Chucky. Chucky, yeah. He plays Chucky, who's Ronald's younger brother in uh, Can't Find Me Love. And, like, Seth Green is really funny and I think just got, like, a really weird early aughts edit of, like, crazy guy or maybe not. But, like, he's very funny and at a young age he's, like, with his parents and is, like, he's he's not, like, the conscience of the movie because no. he's so young. But he just kind of, like, he's the jester. He's got some great lines. He's got the jester and he, he interacts with other characters in a hilarious way. He does more physical comedy than the rest of them. Like, he's hilarious. Yeah. I, so I picked Alicia, who was, like, the bad girl and drive me crazy because she spoke, Who's, like, but she has these lines because she speaks, like, the Riddler the whole time in the movie. Does. It's so strange. And she had me cracking up every time. Like, one, at one point she says, girl gets two-faced boy in backseat, violence anticipated. And I just thought, what a weirdo. I love it. I would be exceptionally annoyed with my friend if they behaved like that. Of course, because no one talks like like that. Like, we wouldn't make it down the street before I was like, that is a weird way to talk. You need to knock it off or we're going home. And that's why I love a teen movie because you get these moments where you're like, no one talks like that. This is insane. That's the thing about teen movies is like, people have such limited patience with one another for like very ridiculous things, and then they have. The utmost patience for thi- patience for things that I would just be like, okay, we can't be friends anymore because you won't stop speaking in platitudes. Mm-hmm. Like this is not going to work anymore. Absolutely. So, who's your prom king and queen of the episode? Okay, so my prom queen is Amanda because I think Amanda. Oh fuck! Is that not her name? Amanda Peterson. Oh, her character's name is Cindy Mancini. Cindy Mancini, Amanda Peterson. Yeah, Cindy Mancini because I think that. Prom King and Queen becomes a little dated in the later movies that we watch. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not even at a prom in uh, Drive Me Crazy. They're, mm-hmm. like, at a centennial. Mm-hmm. So my prom queen is Cindy Mancini because I think I'm just, like, on a... It, it would matter to you, so I will give it to you sort mm-hmm. of a thing. Okay. Um, And then I think that my prom king would be Murph, the f- best friend, because I would like to see a Murph... Mm-hmm. A Murph positive arc. And Murph is a very good friend. He seems to have a lot of other friends who we never meet, which feels frustrating. Like, he sits down at a lunch table that's just filled with seemingly totally normal cool dudes. That's a really, that's a really good poll. Um, and I think that Murph, like, he doesn't have any enemies and he's super bright and, like, yeah, I think Murph would, pro- would actually, in reality, probably be voted prom king in 2019. Okay. I believe that. Yeah. I picked... Nicole from Driving Crazy as the prom queen. I just, for all the reasons I said before, I just think she is probably one of the most whole characters. Like, she's got a lot of... 
Yeah, Melissa Joan Hart does more in 90 minutes than a lot of the people in these movies do in, like, their 90 minutes. Yes, for sure. And she has the best... She's, like, here to make memories, but she never is going to say those are the best years of my life. She's grounded, and I like that. Yeah, she wants... She's like, I want these to be my best high school years. Yeah. The years I'm in high school. Yeah. <laughs> and I picked Peter Kaminsky as my prom king because if you went to his high school and he was in your... You would vote for him a thousand percent. He's friends with everybody. Yeah. Great smile. I would vote he's Peter a, Kaminsky a, to do anything. He's a prom king. Yeah. That's like the role he plays. So, in conclusion, do... Well, first, let's talk about who had the best fake relationship because we didn't really go over that. Yeah. So... Can we define the parameters of, like, fake? Like, I guess... Who, what was the most believable? Yeah. What was, like, the best for, for movie purposes? Yeah, which was the most convincing? Because I think convincing and entertaining are very different. Like, I think entertaining... Um, I loved watching Peter Kavinsky and Laura Jean Covey. But yeah. the most convincing, I was very into Nicole and Chase. So, I think the thing is with, like, convincing, we have to figure out, like, how much of a social gulf is between like the two people and Vince seemed Vince open and, oh, his name's not Vince no. <laughs> Vince is his entourage name Chase opens the movie by like um standing on the roof of I mean within the first 10 minutes he has sprayed all of his classmates with like orange sprinkler water and he's like very anti-establishment and so it didn't feel convincing to me that this like the establishment girl and, like, the anti-establishment guy would come together in a way that people weren't like, what is happening? Um, I mean, crazy things happen in high school. You never know. I think that the most convincing relationship was actually Cindy and Ronald because Ronald had, like, a zero, like, a negative profile. Like, mm. nobody knew who he was. And there's even that line where they're like, did you even go to our uh, football games and someone's like, yeah, he sits in the visitor's seat. And she's like, yeah, so that he can infiltrate the enemy. And it's like, he was such an, like, a sub-teen that they could, like, create this whole new narrative. And that's why it was, like, believable. Because it was like, oh, he's cool and we just didn't know it. I see. Okay. So that's what felt believable is, like, the, oh, he's cool and we just didn't know it. Yeah. And I think, um, I do think Largene and Peter are believable, well, they weren't really trying to convince. Again, their their angle was different. Right, like, like she she didn't she didn't want to be cool or like care about being cool. She they both kind of cared about being themselves, and it seemed a very natural transition. That like, oh, these two people are dating now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, that's not a big deal. What was the least convincing relationship? <sighs> I mean, Nick Cannon and Christina Milian. Yeah, they had no chemistry. Out of all these movies, which would you say is like a must watch part of the canon? To all the boys we love before. Yeah. For all the reasons we yeah. stated. And I think that um, Can't Buy Me Love is, while not a good movie, um, a very referential movie in any sort of fake relationships, the breakup scene and a perfect date very closely mirrored its predecessors in terms of, like, big crowds, watch, there's a big slap, the boy takes the breakup way over the edge, like, um, so... If you're really into teen movies, you've probably already seen Can't Buy Me Love. If you want to get into teen movies, start there. But it's by no means must-watch movies. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. I'm going to 
end this pod by giving three takes on the name Brooks Radigan. Yeah, give it. Okay, so just rapid fire. Um, it's really hard to root for a guy named Brooks, like, period. It's just, like, it's a shitty name. But, like, Brooks Radigan is in completely intolerable. I said you might as well name your kid asshole shit face. <laughs> I said Brooks Radigan is a guy who nicknamed his penis the Fountainhead. And Brooks Radigan is your friend that went to Fire Festival. Oh, yeah. Brooks Radigan is definitely your friend who was like, I'm stuck in Grant and Exumist. I think on that note, we can say, watch Perfect Date or not. Or not. <laughs> if you're like hungover on a Sunday, it's like fine. Next week, we'll be back. We're taking on a big topic that uh, spans a few decades and genres. But... A few centuries. Well, yeah, a few centuries. You're I'm, right. I am so excited. We are talking about... Teenage Shakespeare adaptations. It's going to be the best. It's Thank you great. so much for listening. Yeah. Thank to, you. To all the people I love before. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Smile you love us pod. Shoot us an email at smile you love us at gmail.com. If you have any critiques or whatever. Um, we're also now on iTunes. Ooh. So rate and review us. Um, thank you to the friends that we have that listen and to any strangers in the universe we want to hear from you let us know bye bye